Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Otra vez en el 2 para 1. Ante McNeil, la pelota para Fabio Vieira, arma la pierna el portugués, no tiene espacio para el disparo. Tiene que tocar para Zinchenko, reformula el Arsenal. Uy, qué bien lo ha hecho para Bucayo, saca el balón de ¡Qué golazo! ¡Qué golazo! ¡Qué golazo! ¡Qué golazo! ¡Leandro Trozar! Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra as always with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning, Andrew. How you doing? I'm good. The Goodison hoodoo has been undone. <laughs> <laughs> About time too. Yeah, it feels, it feels well overdue or it felt well overdue besides yesterday. And, yeah. uh, you know, I did, I did think of what you were saying last week about Everton mm. and how bad they were. I know. And you were I right. <laughs> you were very, very right. I was right. I had had the misfortune of seeing them play already this season and they are uh, very bad. Mm. Exceptionally bad. Like, but yeah. we still had a job to do. I mean, they've been really bad in the past and still beaten us, you know? So that's no yeah. no marker of whether or not we're going to take three points at, at Goodison Park. But, uh, yeah, they, they were, I think, surprisingly bad. I know I knew they were bad. I knew they weren't good. There was a sort of deficit of quality, you know, particularly when they let someone like Alex Iwobi go. But they were just dreadful yesterday. And it was good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed how bad they were. I did too. And I think Alex Wobie leaving is actually quite convenient for me because I can now kind of fully dislike them with no hesitation. Um, so, yeah, I, I honestly think they've probably headed for the drop. They've avoided it uh, a few years recently uh, with some escapes, but I just cannot see many redeeming qualities to that team. I'm very glad, though, because it's. I try to steer away from predictions, but I insisted Arsenal would beat Everton. Um, and it, I would have been for it had they not. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was preparing the, you know, yeah. the, the, the torture implements and all the rest of it. So, thank you. Well, yeah. yeah glad. Fortunately, those can be put <laughs> back in the drawer for now. For now, for now, and we can enjoy a good three points. Um, you know, it was it was 
tight enough, I suppose, uh, when you look at the scoreline, when you look at the, the quality of the goal that we had to score in order to win this game, I think is, is an interesting discussion point. And I think there's a wider discussion point about performance levels and control and domination versus chances and, and all that kind of stuff. And I know that there is a really big discussion to be had about the team selection yesterday mm-hmm. with David Raya coming in for Aaron Ramsdale and Mikel Arteta's comments about that in his post-game press conference are very interesting. So I, I wouldn't mind just parking that for now and we can go through the rest of it and go through the game and then come to the goalkeeping thing because I do think that is, is an interesting aspect of, of yesterday. Yeah, fair enough. Well, yeah, that, there'll doubtless be uh, a lot to unpick there. But we could talk about the game itself. I mean, yeah, I suppose 1-0 is a relatively uh, fine margin a uh, tight win, but mm. our dominance of the game was was greater than that, you know? Oh, for sure, for sure. And, and like, there are actually a lot of questions about this, so I don't know if we need to... Maybe we'll just pluck one of these questions and get your thoughts on this. Um, boom, boom, boom. Master Johnbury, who I think is um, on the Discord, uh, said... Is our tendency to take an extra touch on the ball in recent weeks primarily down to, A, learning the new tweaks of a new system, a lack of confidence in oneself and one's teammates, part of an intentional plan to make Arsenal more boring but effective, or D, other? And, I do, you know, this has been a common theme, and I've heard you talk about it on a couple of your videos, where perhaps Arsenal are, are sacrificing something from the attacking play to exert more control over games. Because I think beyond the the uh, Crystal Palace game where we were down to 10 men and obviously the, the the momentum of that game shifted considerably because of that, that in the five games that we've played, we have been dominant and controlling in possession and territory and all of those things. But uh, a common theme to the performances is that we haven't quite had the the panache, the attacking panache that we had last season. So have you got any thoughts on that? A lot of thoughts. I mean, mm. I, I thought it was really telling Mikel Arteta in his post-match press conference. He spoke about the 3-1 win over Manchester United before the international break and said that the full-time whistle, his primary emotion was relief. And he said, I didn't like that. He said, I don't like feeling relief at full-time. And I forget his exact wording, but he basically said, I, I, I like to feel satisfaction. I like to feel content with the performance. And he said, and that's how I feel today at Goodison Park. And I think that gives you some insight as to kind of where his head is at. And I think, <laughs> I mean, some might uh, dislike my use of the word, but I think we have become a bit more boring. I think last season we were quite a sort of rock and roll yeah. football team. Um, you know, it was the, all that talk about emotion and riding the, the highs and the lows. But I think it's all about control now. Um, it's a little bit more kind of stayed in terms of its tone and in terms of like, I think how it feels to watch for me. But the results kind of speak for themselves at this early stage? Mm. I mean, do you think there's an element of trying to find or seeking 
greater precision in the final third because if you are a team that's going to play with the ball a lot and that's what we are that's who we are right now the main danger as was evident in the Manchester United game for example is being caught in transition or play breaking down high up the pitch where you have committed players you've taken a bit of a risk to move players around to try and pull the opposition around and then something goes wrong the ball goes where it's not supposed to go the opposition charge up the other end and then we know of course in the Premier League that that basically most teams have the ability to hurt you uh, whether they do or not is a, is another question but they've certainly got that ability so I do wonder if part of this is looking for greater precision when we're in the opposition half. It's not like, okay, let's let's try and thread one through here. Let's work the ball a bit more so it's not so much through the eye of a needle, but maybe the eye of three needles, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it was interesting. On Sky Commentary, Gary Neville, um, when he wasn't talking about time-wasting, just before half-time, uh, made a comment where he said, you know, Arsenal maybe need to take a few more risks in possession. Mm. You know, they need to, instead of always trying to find the spare man, play it to the man who's marked and trust in their technical ability to retain the ball. And I found myself agreeing with that. I was like, well, you know, that's what I want to see. I want to see Arsenal take more risks. I want to see Arsenal be more adventurous. But then I sort of double took and thought, well, is that what Mikel Arteta wants? And I, I'm not necessarily at this point in the season, convinced that it is. I think that there is greater emphasis on security, possession, control, and uh, patience with that, and knowing that eventually there'll be a mistake or a lapse in concentration that you can take advantage of. And, you know, that was what happened yesterday. I mean, I think Arsenal did step their game up as the as the match wore on and once the second half began, I think there was a little bit more risk-taking. But really, mm. you know, this was all about kind of knowing that we were better, completely owning the ball and trusting that the moment would come. Um, I mean, did, it, sorry. It's, it's, so I was just going to say, it's it's sort of, it's interesting because it's not... I have to be honest and say, like, it, it, it's very reminiscent to me of the way, you know, Man City have played and, of course, won titles and many other trophies playing. But but being completely candid, um, it doesn't get me on the edge of my seat. So, mm. but then I'm off my seat uh, at the full-time whistle when we win. So it's kind of a trade-off, I, I guess, I'm prepared to I make. mean, I do feel like, you know, what what we've said probably makes sense but I also feel like he would like a bit more from the attacking side of his team as well I surely, do, you know I, I think there may be other aspects to this and we have talked about how there are some changes in the team there are some uh, new personnel there's some new players in new positions we've had the whole different left back apart you know in, in the previous games this is uh, the first time we've played with the same left-back in consecutive games so far this season. So there are reasons why I think some of the fluency, the attacking fluency, is is missing beyond the, I don't want to say safety-first approach, because it's not safety-first, because you're playing with the ball in their half. But I think when it comes to making that final pass, that final move, you know, he is looking for, or looking for his players perhaps to to 
to note the patterns with which they train to try and find those passes and those movements and those players in behind. There were a couple couple of good long passes um, yesterday, which is, you know, not necessarily something we we do a great deal. I think a couple, there was one from Zinchenko, were they both maybe to Fabio Vieira? Mm. You know, sort of over the top and he makes a run and and sort of trying to open teams up in that way. But I do think he would want more from his team um, in attack, uh, particularly, you know, against a team who, are, who like uh, Everton, like some of the teams who face this season, aren't necessarily going to commit too many men forward anyway. Yeah, I agree with that. This is a manager who's spoken about the need to get the second and third goal and kill games. So doubtless he would ask for more from the attack. Um I just feel like he has, over the course of the summer and maybe even before that, kind of really analysed the situation and correctly identified that Arsenal are going to be facing a hell of a lot of teams this season who play very, very deep and just look to make it difficult for you to break them down. And it is difficult. And I think maybe it's sort of a learning Mm. experience for this team as well. They're encountering this more and more regularly. And we're going to have to see how they find ways to unlock it. You know, yesterday it was a set-piece routine that proved the difference. Um, but other times it might need to be a piece of individual brilliance or, like you say, just being a little bit more accurate with our interplay in the final third. I don't think we look like the finished article yet. And I certainly agree that it's the final third where we look short of our best. But I guess with, you know, what is it, four wins and a draw on the board, that's something we should be pretty excited about because if you're picking up points mm. with room for improvement, then you're in a healthy position. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And look, there's a big discussion to be had about one of the selection decisions. But there was another one I think that's that's interesting as well because pre-game, Arteta was asked about uh, Everton and the sort of physicality that they have. And he was quite keen to play that down. He said, there's more to Everton than just, you know, uh, being physical. I'm not sure there is a great deal more to this particular iteration of Everton than that. There's always a lot of, you know, elbows and arms flailing and studs when you play a Sean Dyche team, right? Because that's, that's what he does and that's what they do. But the decision that he made, obviously, was not to sort of combat... Everton's physicality, which I think is a thing. He picked a smaller goalkeeper and he picked a smaller central midfield player with Fabio Vieira coming in for Kai Havertz. Mm -hmm. And that was, again, about control in possession, whether it was at the back or whether it's further forward. I think... Those are deci- or those decisions uh, that he made in particular, you know, the Vieira for Havertz one um, was about maintaining that that measure of control. So Everton don't really have a chance to sort of, you know, how how do they try and hurt you? We saw it towards the end of the game when they had a few free kicks. They get the goalkeeper up, they lump it into the box, and that's basically all they've got. Um, but you know, if you're in possession of the ball, there's not a lot they can do with it. No, I think you're right broadly. He he went technical in terms of his team selection. Mm. Um, again, control was kind of the key word. And I also think there may be, I, I doubt it was deliberate, but it was perhaps a happy coincidence that in changing both Havertz and Ramsdale, he kind of uh, slightly diluted 
the focus. You know, I think if, let's say, Ramsdale had stayed in and taken Havertz out, mm. there would have been an awful lot of headlines about that. As it is, no one's talking about it today. So uh, that might be a bit of a, a happy consequence. But Vieira deserved the start, I think, after the performances he's had coming off the bench. Um, and this is a big week with three big games. And I expect we'll see changes in all of them. Vieira could have had an assist uh, with a yes. lovely ball through to Gabriel Martinelli. I mean, it's such a shame that goal was chalked off because of the quality of the pass and the quality of the finish. I mean, I think it's sort of, you know, it's not really a talking point now, I suppose, because the goal didn't count, but it really was a brilliant finish from Martinelli. It was outstanding finish. And, you know, Artes has talked so much about the understanding between those two guys. They're very mm. close, great mates. And that was a, an instance of it working out. But, yeah, I would have loved to see it stand because it was a, a, a brilliant goal. And it was kind of a double blow, wasn't it? Because it was ruled out and then we lost Martinelli to injury. Yes. Yeah, he obviously did something to his, uh, did something to his hamstring. I mean, what do you make of the... <sighs> The offside decision, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I presume, I haven't had a look yet, but I presume Dale Johnson has done a you know 25-tweet thread on why it's actually offside based on the rules of the, or the offside law as it stands and all the rest of it. Like, it has to be a deliberate pass by the, uh, by the Everton player. But, you know, it's a fine line, isn't it? Because he deliberately tries to block the ball and knocks it back. So... Yeah, uh, yeah. My, uh, I mean, the the wording uh, talks about deliberate play, and I think it defines it as when a player has control of the ball, with the possibility mm. of passing to a teammate, gaining possession of the ball, or clearing the ball. And I suppose um, it's fair to say that Beto does not have control of the ball in that situation. Yeah. However, um, to me. I think that wording feels wrong. Looking at that goal, I think that should stand. Mm-hmm. I understand that under the current laws, it does not, and it was a correct decision on the field. But I would query mm. you know, that definition. Because as you say, he deliberately intervenes in play. Um, and if an attacker, uh, let's say, uh, I don't know, goes to make a block... And it works out to be a through ball to his mate. We wouldn't be like, oh, well, he wasn't in control of the ball there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I feel like it gives too much advantage to the defender in that situation. True. I mean, I think, didn't they talk about giving the attacking side more benefit of the doubt in situations like this, you know? Yeah, I think broadly that's a good rule for the sport, you know? Mm. Um, and so that's a change I would like to see made, but... I also think it's not particularly helpful to have commentators sort of joining the uh, conspiracy theorists about are the lines straight, are oh, the lines wonky. Listen, I think that's just him doubling down on what he said after the the Man United game. You know, absolutely, it really absolutely. is, and it's uh, like. But you're feeding you're feeding the the nonsense conspiracy stuff. I no, think, I agree. Right? I agree. I think it's I think it's terrible. I also think him basically inventing the 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 narrative of time wasting when we took 26 seconds to take a corner, like, you know, I don't want to go conspiracy theory here either because, um, you know, it's not helpful, but I don't think it's right for Gary Neville to a, you know, the, the offside lines are the offside lines, you know, it's, it's 
basically the most black and white thing there is about VAR, right? Whether you yeah, agree with just, I mean, as much as we might joke about it, they're not just, you know, drawn by a bloke with a marker yeah. on a whiteboard. You know, they are using multiple camera angles to establish... Yeah, and they show one camera angle which shows the offside and that's it. It doesn't show all the other camera angles because, like, you know, who's got time for that? So, you know, as much as sometimes those minuscule offsides can be a bit of a pain in the arse, they are what they are. And it's not right, I think, for Neville to to cast doubt on on those decisions and the stuff about the the time, you know, sort of insinuating it was time-wasting. It was nil-nil. It was nil-nil. That's the most galling thing about it, you know. Why, is my question, why would a team with aspirations to win the title uh, facing a team in the position Everton are in at nil-nil, why would it be in their interest to time waste yeah. in that situation scenario? I mean, thank you to uh, James on Twitter, who's at Blag3000 for sending me through a uh, a graphic of uh, 22-23 Premier League season, average delay per event, uh, you know, free kick corner, goal kick throw in, penalty and kick off after a goal. The average uh, delay, if you want to call it that, from a corner in the Premier League last season was 33 seconds. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, it just feels to me a bit like there's a sort of the broadcasters are trying very, very hard to back the officiating of PGMOL and the the way that they are dealing with things like time wasting. Did you see the comments from the Sheffield United manager? I did. Yeah. I mean, I thought they were really interesting as well. Um, and I do wonder if perhaps, you know, in the light of those comments and him questioning um, whether or not the officials understand the game well enough. Like, just to paraphrase what he is saying, that, like, his goalkeeper is being told to... Um, hurry up. To hurry up, right? And they're basically trying to work their uh, goal kick routines, right? So uh, Tottenham have adapted to what they're doing, so they have to take a little bit more time. I really don't understand why an official will tell a goalkeeper, you know, uh, unless it's like egregiously obvious time wasting when it's just a goal kick, like referees should not be able to dictate how teams play. And I think it's in their discretion then to just add on the time. If they feel like it's taking a little bit too long, add on the time. And this sort of double threat of um, the, the, the added on time plus yellow cards for just trying to play the game, not time wasting. We all know it when we see it. You know, I, I think the I think there's a bit of a line that's been crossed here. Like the officials and the officiating and the referee, they are trying to have a direct impact on the quality of the games that teams can play. And I don't think that's right. I just don't think that's right. And it feels a little bit to me like what Neville was doing yesterday on commentary was, you know, sort of backing up what PGMOL are trying to implement so far this season. Yeah, I think it's maybe a little bit cosy since Howard Webb came in. Mm. It's been a bit of a reset point, maybe, for the relationship between the broadcasters and the officiating body. And, you know, it feels like there are some efforts to kind of strengthen that relationship um, and make more dialogue, maybe, and maybe add things into programming, Um you know, maybe Sky are thinking, well, if we play our cards right, we might get 
a referee post game before too long. Or, you know what I mean? Like something like mm. that. I don't know, but I agree with you that it was a sort of strange narrative to keep on about. Um, even post-game, you know. Even post-game, And, post -game, and yeah. even I, I, at halftime as well, they were at pains to make it clear that as the law stands, this was the correct decision. You know, that's, I suppose they were having in some ways to to sort of counter what Neville had said himself in commentary, casting doubt on the, on the offside. Yeah, I, just with the time-wasting on the corner thing, I mean, obviously we'll come on to the goal in a bit, but I, I, I come back to the point. I don't really see what advantage Arsenal would gain by time-wasting in that situation. I mean, conventionally, if you want to hurt teams with a short corner, you take it quickly. Mm. You take it quickly so they don't have time to set, to mark, to be in their correct positions. Arsenal gave Everton every chance of being correctly set for that. And look, maybe there was a degree of deliberateness about that. Maybe they said, let's get them into their shapes so that we can exploit the spaces that we know exist. But... I just don't see that there was any grand advantage or any, you know, sort of particular gamesmanship to what Arsenal were doing. It takes about 30 seconds to retrieve the ball, put it down, get everyone in position and take a corner. Yeah, it's mad. You can add it on. That's, the, I, that's where I'm with you. Like, I don't, I don't have a particular issue with these stoppage time, you know, extended stoppage times. But then yesterday... It was pretty brief, wasn't it, stoppage time? Yeah, it was um, a fairly conventional four minutes. Yeah, so maybe that trend is kind of dying off, well, as these it. things tend to do once yeah. the season is a couple of months underway. This is it. This is it. Um, anyway, enough time wasted on supposed time wasting. Sure, sure. So Martinelli goes off and Trossard comes on. Trossard comes on. I think we lost a little bit of, uh, of momentum after that because I felt like we were just beginning to sort of build up a little bit of a, a head of steam. And yeah. I, I think it's fair to say it took Trossard a little bit of time to get into the game. I think so. And Martinelli had looked a threat, you know, in behind Ashley Young, as you would expect. Um and Trossard's not really a guy who makes those runs. He's mm. more someone who comes in field and joins up play, combination player. Uh, I remember feeling like we weren't getting Martin Odegaard on the ball very much, and or, or certainly in good areas. And, you know, that's important for this team, really mm. important because he is so good. Um, so, yeah, I think it did hit us. I think injuries can affect momentum. I think VAR decisions can affect momentum. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a, a great deal of opportunities for Arsenal in what remained of the first half, as far as I recall. No, um, I don't think so. It sort of played out and, you you know, it goes back to ben what you were White saying. Shot, yeah, Ben White blocks. shot. And then early, early second half, I think we came out pretty quick as well, didn't we? There was the Odegaard chance. There was a Vieira put a ball across the face of goal. It's sort of one of those where you're, you're looking for your centre forward. You're looking for a poacher like Eddie to be in there, but he was. I think he made a different run to the near post. And it was a it was a difficult game for Eddie and Kedia up front. Um, I, you know, I think it was also a difficult game for Gabriel Jesus up front when he came on as well. To, to be, be fair, fair yeah. Um, you know, we found it difficult to get the ball in there primarily because you know Everton were sitting deep and and um, it's difficult to play the ball into feet of a, a central striker unless you've got an absolute giant in there. There's little point in giving the ball into a, a sort of Jesus and Kedia size striker when he's got two central defenders right up his arse, you know. Mm. Um, but he did make that change. He brought um, he brought Jesus on for Kedia. It was about 65 minutes, and not long after, 
we got corner. Good work from Saka. Um, and there's the routine that we talked about. Uh, you say not long after, Andrew, but it was 23 seconds longer after than a lot of people would have liked. <laughs> it, yeah, it was well worked. Well worked. And I, I, I'd be fascinated to know how planned a move like that is or like to what degree is it sort of yeah, improvisation? I completely agree. I completely agree because there's a lot of talk about, oh, this is something that they worked on on the, the training ground. I think Trossard was asked about it. Is that something you've worked on on the training ground? He goes, of course. And yeah. <laughs> Arteta uh, was asked about it as well. He said, do you want to tell us about that routine? He went, no. Um, but I think it's probably a little from column A, a little from column B, isn't it? It's like take the short corner, see who moves, see where the space is and, and see if you can get players in. But, the, you know, when you do look at it again, Trossard makes a move into an area where if we do get the ball into that sort of inside right channel, he has the opportunity to pick up a pass or have a shot. So, you know, that movement, yeah. I think, from Trossard is is very deliberate. I think that's absolutely right. Look, clearly there was an emphasis on short corners. I think it's interesting. It comes off the back of the United game where we had a ton of corners and mm. uh, there was a lot of frustration about the delivery and hitting the first man. Um, obviously, this is a different opponent as well. But, you know, I think they looked at it and said, that's how we can hurt them with our mm. interplay, our combinations. I don't think every pass in that move is rehearsed. You know, yeah. they, they pull it back to Fabio Vieira on the edge of the box. And I, I don't know, like his first touch isn't quite clean. I think he might even, be, maybe the plan was for him to hit it. Um, but he comes back and then they, they carry on the move. Mm. You're right to point out Trossard's movement though. If you, if you watch the sequence back, he's so alive. You know, Saliba's in there, Gabriel's in there, Jesus is in there, but predominantly they're sort of just hanging off the shoulder of their marker. Trossard is he takes up about four positions in an mm. eight-second sequence and he gets his reward, Saka tucks it back. And what finish that is? It's an unbelievable finish. Yeah. Like it's so – like the precision of it is is unbelievable. I mean, can we just say what a very satisfying crack off the post that is. <laughs> yeah, know, great it, sound. I love that sound. Um, but, you know, he had to open up his body, put it across the goalkeeper – and it's an outswinger as well, so it's not like it's got the ability to curl back inside the post. He has to keep it within the confines of the post. It's absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. He steers it. Yeah. He steers it. He's, he's got a brilliant goal in the break. I don't yeah, know if you he saw did. It. Yeah, yeah. But scoring goals is something he's, he's, you know, we should see more from him. He's, I think he's been a bit unlucky thus far in his Arsenal career. You know, he's hit the bar a few times. He had a brilliant goal at Leicester, ruled out. Yeah. Um, because Ben White was, I don't know, had his hands down the goalkeeper's trousers or whatever it was, I can't remember. <laughs> but this was a great take and a good moment for him. You know, last few weeks, I feel like we've had questions saying, when are we going to see Trossard? When are we going to see Trossard? Well, I think this is just evidence that we have to be a bit more patient about that and the times will mm. come for him. And, and, you know, Martinelli's out injured now, so I think we might be seeing a fair bit of him. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he took it, yeah, took his chance very well. Um and stat padder Bukayo Saka yeah. can claim another assist. <laughs> the fraud Bukayo Saka. <laughs> yes. Long may he uh, continue being the kind of fraud he is. I love it. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
we did have other chances. I think there was a, an Odegaard chance with his right foot. Vieira follow-up was well blocked. I mean, how did you feel at 1-0 in this one? Um, it is a tight uh, scoreline. And you sort of knew that if Everton were going to get anything, it was going to be when they tried to, you know, they had a corner or two maybe and they, some set pieces, you know, that, mm. that Pickford launched into the box. But I have to say, I, I felt pretty relaxed about this one because I felt like there was a a control not only when we didn't or when we had the ball, but when we didn't have the ball. You know, there was there was real organization to our positioning, to our defending. We won the headers. Um, yeah, I, I just didn't feel the sort of, oh, this is tight kind of panic that we've had in, in previous situations. I agree. I thought it was really comfortable, you know, much more comfortable, say, than the 1-0 win at Palace. Um, I thought we looked much more secure here. Well, we had and- an extra man, in fairness, so. Yeah, yeah, that does help. Um, I thought the changes had a really clear logic to them. You know, Tommy Asu came on for Zinchenko. Uh, at that point in time, Arsenal had White, Saliba, Gabriel, Tommy Asu across the back. Four players who can all play centre half, who are all tall. Mm. You know, Havertz came Havertz on for the air. Well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We got taller uh, as the game went on, and it became clear that Everson's only real threat was going to be Pickford launching something into the box. When he did, um, Largely, we dealt really well with it. You know, Raya was calm and composed. Uh, I felt very relaxed, to be honest with you, mm. at 1-0. And, and that's that feeling that Arteta was talking about post-game, that feeling of um, a, a job well done, effectively yeah. done, being very much uh, the dominating, controlling team. Yeah. And, yeah, I think he'll be very, very, very uh, pleased with that day's work. Let's get on to the goalkeeping thing. And ju- just before we do, I'm going to play Mikel Arteta's press conference uh, comments now in, in a second. But just, I know he didn't have a great deal to do, but thoughts on Raya's debut? Yeah, I thought he was good. Mm-hmm. I thought he was good. I, I, to be honest, he really had very little to do in the game. And in some respects, maybe that's perfect for a goalkeeper who's new in the team. Mm-hmm. Um, but what he did have to do, he looked very confident. We know, we know he's a very good goalkeeper. And I think he, he demonstrated that. Had to come and collect a couple of things, did it. On the one occasion he didn't, he was fouled. Um, footwork was what you would expect, very tidy indeed. There was mm-hmm. one nice pass out to Ben White, I think it was. Um, so, yeah, I thought he did well. Okay. So it is a big decision when a manager decides to change uh, goalkeeper. And, you know, however you want to look at this, there's a symmetry between this situation maybe and and Ramsdale coming into the team after an international break in place of Bernd Leno and Bernd Leno never got his place back and ultimately left the club. Mm-hmm. Um, however... symmetry in fact because mm. not only is there that but you know, one of Ramsdale's first games was against the Sean Dyche team in Burnley. I think it was his second game. And I remember that, you know, they were lumping it in the box and it was Aaron Ramsdale coming off his mm. line and catching balls. And we were all like, oh, this is nice. This is good. Um, and also there was a North London derby on the horizon. Obviously Ramsdale was picked for that. It kind of cemented his position. So mm. it's almost eerie, I would say, the kind of parallels. And I'm sure Aaron Ramsdale's acutely aware of that. Yeah. Now... Arteta was really interesting, I think, in his in his 
post-game comments. So I'm going to play, there's about a minute and a bit of, of Mikel Arteta from his press conference. He was asked what the rationale was uh, for the change to bring in David Raya uh, in place of Aaron Ramsdale. This is what he had to say. It's the same rationale that Fabio played here, already play, and Gabriel Jesus, you know. I haven't had a single question why Gabriel Jesus hasn't started. He has won he has won more trophies than anybody else, including me in that dressing room. Uh, but they don't, you know. So it's something that historically is done like this, but I cannot have two players in his position and don't play them. You know, and David has tremendous qualities like Aaron has, like Carl has, but we have to use them, you know, and um, and it's like this. I'm a really young manager. I only been three and a half years in, in the job and I have few regrets for what I've done. One of them it was that in two occasions I felt after 60 minutes and after 85 minutes in two games in this period to change the keeper in that moment. And I didn't do it. I didn't have the courage to do it. But I am able to take a winger or a striker and put a center defender back and go to a back five to hold that result. And we draw those games and I was so unhappy. And someone is going to do it. And maybe it's, ah, that's strange, why? Why not? Tell me why not. You have all the qualities in another goalkeeper to do something. Something has happened. You want to change momentum? Do it, you know. And it's a regret that I had. And now my feeling is to get everybody engaged in the team, that they have to play, regardless of the competition, and do it. And this is my message. We play with 11 players. We don't play with 10 plus 1 or sometimes with 10, sometimes with 9. Exactly the same. Um, I mean, it, it, it is really fascinating because you know what he's talking about here if this is what he's going to do if we take him at face value it is going to be something quite different in terms of how managers and football teams use their goalkeepers even if we have some examples in the past of you know bit of a timeshare situation where one goalkeeper plays in the the Premier League, the other goalkeeper plays in Europe, I don't think that's quite what he's saying there. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, maybe the thing about Mikel Arteta is right that you couldn't say with any certainty that that this isn't what he's going to do, right? There are things that he has done which have been, you know, a bit new, a bit different, all the rest of it. So it's not impossible that he is abs- uh, absolutely telling us the truth here. He's got two excellent goalkeepers. He's going to use them both throughout the season. But, you know, at the same time, part of me thinks this is perhaps just a changing of the guard. Yeah, I think I, I share your cynicism about that. You know, I, I think this is a. Um, he, he gave that answer to all the media. You know, it's clearly something mm. that he'd thought about, and it's an answer that affords Aaron Ramsdale some protection and maybe deflects the narrative a little bit um, from being, you know, uh, all about a, a, p- a permanent change being made in terms of the number one. So I like you have a sort of nagging feeling that this is kind of rhetoric, but we will actually see a relatively clear hierarchy um, emerge fairly soon. But I think it's worth talking about it as if he was serious, because I just think it's so fascinating if he is. It would be amazing 
like time will tell. We can sit here and be as cynical as we like about those comments. And other people might say, no, this is what he's going to do. Yeah. He's a fairly straight talking guy. And when he says he's going to do something, he kind of does it. And he does have that in fairness, you know, um, because I, I think there are other ways he could have explained that decision. You know, there are other ways he could have, you know, not opened up this discussion about how he's going to use his goalkeepers throughout the season. You know, that's the, true. You know, yeah. Um, he 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 raised a lot of that. It wasn't like he was asked, "Are you going to rotate?" or you know, "Are you going to switch them up?" He could have just said, I "We pick picked the best, the best team." Today. Yeah, That's exactly. It. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I think this idea of of conflating or e- equating maybe the goalkeeping position with all the other positions is a is is a fascinating discussion because it's not what happens. It's not what happens in, in football, certainly not in my lifetime. And look, I'm here. I'm open to new things. If this is the way it's going to go, it would be it would be really interesting to see how it plays out. It would be really interesting to see if it catches on at other clubs, if other clubs start to do it, if this is what's going to happen. Um, well, it's already happening at some other clubs. I mean, who are the most progressive and tactically interesting team in this league right now? Arguably... Brighton, mm-hmm. they rotate their goalkeepers. Uh, Bart Verbruggen started two games and Jason Steele has started three. And they've been told very clearly, you'll be selected according to the opposition, according to who the manager thinks is most suitable. Mm. So it's not complete fantasy, you know. It, no. And I think, you know, the game is so about the fine margins. You know, where can we create advantage? Um and in a league where the majority of teams just have a clear number one and they don't alternate that, first of all, they don't have the depth and the quality of player that we have to alternate that. Um, maybe it is something that can really strengthen our options, strengthen our flexibility, ensure that if one of those goalkeepers gets injured, we have someone who's not only very good, but also relatively sharp and able to step in. I mean, do you think he's made some, not a rod for his own back, but do you think there's a certain amount of pressure now on him to sort of back up what he has said so very publicly? Because I think the other aspect of this is is him talking about substituting a goalkeeper during a game, Um, you know, which is unheard of, really, unless, you know, you've got a penalty specialist and it's the last minute of a, a, you know, extra time and you're going to a penalty shootout. We've seen that kind of thing happen before or not happen. <laughs> Who was it that wouldn't come off that time? Was it Chelsea? Kepa. Kepa. Yeah. He, he wouldn't come off despite the fact he was being substituted. Um, but, you know, let's sort of dial it back a little bit in, in terms of how you manage your squad. And he's talked about, I've got two very good players um, you know, why shouldn't the goalkeeping position be unlike striker or winger or center half or fullback or anything like that? That's what he has said. And he's got a goalkeeper who has performed to a pretty high level for him since he arrived at the club, Aaron Ramsdale. Like every goalkeeper, he's had his you know moments, but I think he's been a really solid player for us. Very popular with the fans, very popular within the squad. He hasn't let Arteta down. And to be fair, Arteta went to great lengths to bring him in, in the face of, you know, some opposition from pundits and fans because of Ramsdale's stature, or, or let's say the, the 
the stature of the clubs that Ramsdale played for before yeah, he arrived at Arsenal, right? Yeah, the Absolutely. perception of, of Ramsdale as a goalkeeper, which we know now is very different. So Arteta really had a lot of faith or you know, in, in Aaron Ramsdale. It's and hard to think... And contract in May. Exactly, and it's hard to think that that has evaporated to the point where he's just said, right, I'm going to bring in David Raya, he's going to be the goalkeeper now, and that's it for Ramsdale. Like, he's got a job now to sort of manage this situation in a way that doesn't cause ripples within the squad because players want to play and, and all the rest of it. Well, that's it. I mean, and that's why this is so fascinating because, as you say... Ramsdale's very popular with the fans, very popular among the squad as well. You know, it could be that this rhetoric from Arteta is just a way of kind of managing any dissent around what is a a more emphatic decision than he is letting on. Equally, it may be in earnest and he may be contemplating a scenario where both these goalkeepers play. I mean... From a th- theoretical point of view, I do find it absolutely fascinating. And I, and I sort of think maybe we're all just so indoctrinated in this idea that you can't rotate the goalkeeper, that we're almost blind to it. Because actually, you could argue it, it's easier to rotate a goalkeeper than any other position. I mean, they literally spend most of the training sessions away from all the other players. Mm. Like their connectivity with the people around them you could make the case, at least, uh, is maybe less um, necessary than mm. certain other roles. And I think where it gets really interesting is Arsenal women have two goalkeepers, right? Um, and they pick and choose according to opposition. But stylistically, I gather they are very different from having read, you know, Tim talking about them mm. and the bits and pieces I've seen. You know, they have two very different types of goalkeeper. And I think where I slightly struggle with what Arteta is saying is that when I look at Ryan Ramsdale, I don't see them as two different types necessarily. You know, it's not Edison and Fraser Forster. I kind of see them as two two of the same thing with a slight variation in strength and weakness in different areas, but maybe not enough for me to really believe that he's going to pick and choose week by week, you know? I mean, does that not make it easier to pick and choose week by week? If you've got two goalkeepers who are pretty similar. um, Well, that's true. He could not do this last season. And that is a fact. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting about this game in particular is that I thought, you know, when it comes to away games, maybe he thought like Raya would be relatively untroubled today because of what he was trying and planning to do with Everton. But but I think many of Ramsdale's best performances have come away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought as well, because it's a slightly more physical team, Ramsdale being the bigger guy might have been the, the obvious choice here. So it's sort of skewing my perception of, you know, which game suits Ramsdale and which game suits Raya, if that's the way that we're going to go. Yeah, and that that's going to be really interesting. I mean, everyone will have their own hunch about how this might play out. Mm. But I do think to a certain extent, we are just going to have to sit back and watch. And I think the next few weeks will tell us a lot. Uh, there's obviously a Champions League game on Wednesday. There's the North London derby at the weekend. The games come thick and fast, and I expect them both to play in this period. Um, do you think Ramsdale will play Wednesday? I think he has to play Wednesday, to be honest. 
if he's got any chance of playing on Sunday. Um, I mean, I, he, I, I have a feeling that the decision about Sunday has already been made. But, yeah. it, you know, the Champions League game on Wednesday is, I suppose, a very early opportunity for Mikel Arteta to say, look, I told you. I'm going to pick Ramsdale. He's been the number one for like two years or whatever it is. It's not like this is a, uh, you know, a decision that is going to impact the team negatively in any way, no. you know, and it is a very early opportunity for him after these comments to say, well, look, Ramsdale's playing the, uh, Ramsdale's playing the Champions League game. And then Sunday, my gut feeling based on, you know, what we saw yesterday is that he's got Raya in mind for the Derby. Yeah, that would not surprise me at all if that's how it plays out. And as I say, I think the next few weeks, we've got some big games coming up. Mm. Um, and, I think you know, leading into the Man City game on the 8th of October, you know, if, if he picks the same goalkeeper, if he picks Raya for Spurs and Man City, then he can talk about not having number one all he likes, but that will have set a hierarchy. Do you not think... I do. I do, yeah. Um but again it might be it might be as much down to the way he feels he needs to control these games. I would say that Raya is probably, you know, he has an edge on the ball over Ramsdale. I think that's I think that's uh, yeah, not unreasonable. Therefore, the kind of games that we're going to play against Spurs and and Manchester City might require a little more risk at the back if that makes sense therefore mm -hmm. he sees Raya as the guy who can who can maybe find those passes a little bit better even though I do think Ramsdale on the ball um you know particularly when he came into the team in, into the team first you know he demonstrated some real ability on the ball and I don't think it's it's quite as marked as it has been or it would have been let's say with with uh, Ramsdale Turner but yeah I mean the the, the caliber of the opposition might tell you about you know, how he's thinking about his goalkeepers. And, and I, I should say as well that I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that he starts Raya in both the Champions League and the North London Derby next week. Um, you know, this may all be talk and he may, mm. or he may be thinking about it in longer spells uh, of keeping keepers in. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I do think it's a really interesting area because there are going to be a lot of games to to play. And from next season, there's going to be eight Champions League group games before Christmas. Yeah. Right? And unless you've got one guy that you want to play literally all of those, then you do need two. Um, it just sort of feels like new territory, really. And well, yeah, We have no precedent for it. You know, we really don't have any sort of precedent for it beyond the sort of chop and change Europe domestic goalkeeper situation we had when you had the likes of Czech and Ospina and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And even I think that we was... had periods where, I mean, we have had contests for the shirt at Arsenal. We have had periods where Fabianski and Chesney, mm. you know, kind of exchanged the number one shirt a few times. Um, even a little bit of that with Almunia and Lehman. What what it always comes back to is, can you keep both these players happy? That's it. And is Arteta serious about wanting to do that? Because if he is serious about wanting to do that, 
he's going to have to make concessions to them both and give them both enough to feel part of the squad and like they're contributing and like they get their chance to shine and like they have a, a hope of keeping their international places. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the reaction from Ramsdale is going to be is going to be very interesting because, you know, he's obviously pushing Pickford for a place in the in the England team. But if he's not playing, that's not going to happen. It is a delicate situation. Whatever Arteta has planned, it is a delicate situation um, because keeping players happy isn't easy. They all want to play. But if you are making decisions which can have a sort of marked impact on a player's ambitions, that that adds another layer to it. And looking at it purely practically from his point of view, he doesn't want to lose either of these goalkeepers anytime soon. Certainly not this season. Mm. You know, the the value of having two goalkeepers of this quality is that it really protects us in that position until May, at the very least. Mm. And so I think this first half of the season, leading into a January transfer window, in my opinion, the last... I mean, obviously, Raya is probably going to be here to make whatever happens. But the last thing you want to do is sort of alienate an important squad member. Um, I think you have to share it around and keep try and keep both happy um, because you want them there for the run-in if mm. something happens. And it's going to be a hell of a challenge. That's the thing. You know, Mikel says it's cultural. Mikel says, you know, we just don't accept it because we're not used to it. I, I think the reality alongside that is that it's very, very difficult to keep both those players um, happy. And that's that's the biggest challenge, yeah. I think, in some respects. Well, it's one that he has created for yeah, himself. absolutely. He brought you know? it on himself, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and he may not, that may not be his intention. He may be like, I'm happy for one guy to win and one guy to lose and we move on. Like, yeah. I don't think, you know, Mikel's quite a ruthless man and I don't think we should rule that out. But I would be very interested to see, just as an experiment almost, if he did follow through with what he has said. Yeah. I'd be really fascinated to see if he can make that work. Time will tell. Time will tell. You know, the season is long. It'll play out in front of us and we will obviously circle back to these comments, I suppose, in a few weeks, a few months time to see uh, to see how it's all played out. So, look, it worked yesterday. Um, we won the game, took three points at Everton and, um, you yeah. know, it puts clean us in. Sheet. Yeah, clean it, sheet as well. Very, yeah, He'll feel very justified in his decisions. He will. As long as the the games keep getting won, you know, uh, you can't have too many arguments. You can discuss all you like, but you can't argue too much. So, look, let's leave it there for part one. Uh, we've got questions, which we will do. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, in part two. That's what comes after part one, isn't it? Normally. Usually. Usually. Conventionally. But, you know, we're all about changing the conventions now. All right. two first-choice goalkeepers, Andrew. Everything's gone out the window. That's it. I'm going to leave a 26-second gap here. And then we will be back with part two and your questions and more right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter at Gunnarblog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Just off the back of our discussion uh, at the end of part one, I like this from Russ, who's at RL Outside on Twitter. He says, is it time to bring in Rush goalies? <laughs> Last man back. That's not been discussed enough. Would he use two at the same time? Yeah. Um. Yeah, why not? Rush goalies. It could work. Could, could work. work. Um, what about this from Todd Nelson, who said, which two games do you think Arteta regrets not changing the keeper in the 60th and 85th minutes? See, I can't remember well enough a situation where I ever thought, you know what we could do with changing the goalkeeper or did the goalkeeper make a mistake I wonder maybe our was he talking about games where perhaps your goalkeeper could give you a bit more control in possession? Something like that? Maybe. Uh, it's hard to say. Somebody said, oh, could it be, um, you know, the Runison game against Man City where Runison was having a nightmare and he felt he should change it then. Who? But, I mean, if Runison was playing, who was the goalkeeper on the bench? Well, that... I actually was just trying to find out. So that was a 4-1. Uh, was that a cup It might game? have been Leno, to be fair. But let's see. 4-1 uh, in the Carabao Cup, December 2020. Lineups. Yeah, he had burned Leno there. But I think that's possible. But, I mean, uh, you know, the game was pretty much gone by that point in time. I think... Yeah. I mean, that was a game where we started with Cedric Mustafi and Kalasinac, so, you know. Yeah, I mean, could it be more recent? Could it be Fulham, you know? Could it be... Um, trying to think of other games where we... 
The, see, the reason I, I would, I mean, it could be a game last season where Turner started and he thought, oh, maybe I should bring Ramsdale on. It's hard to know, isn't it? And also, it could be completely made up and just something he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's just as easy. But I mean, can you imagine the discussion? Like, whatever he says about, you know, looking at the goalkeeper as the same as any outfield player. And if your striker's not playing well, you take him off, you put another striker on. If your central midfielder is mm. being bypassed, you put a different central midfielder on. But the repercussions of taking a goalkeeper off mid-game are fucking seismic, aren't they? Like, even if it is going to become the new norm, the first couple of times it happens, it's going to be, what the fuck? Yeah. What is happening here? And I, I think... No player likes to be substituted, but I think that there would be a particular humiliation for a goalkeeper to be subbed, like, on the hour mark, or even on 85 minutes. <laughs> you know, uh, towards the end of a game, you're throwing in a guy who's who's got to come in and get, it, you know, up to this. I just, I can't imagine any manager really ever doing it unless his goalkeeper is having the howleriest of howlers. I just can't see that happening. No. I... I it would be big. It would be big. Um, and that's the thing, again, about this whole can you have two. I think that the reason the conventions around goalkeeping exist is that I think goalkeepers' confidence has to be protected because they're in a position mm. where they are going to get beaten. Like, they are going to concede goals and they have to be resilient against that. Yeah. And I do think when you're sort of chopping and changing them or taking them off <laughs> in the 75th minute, I do think you run the risk of eroding that confidence and maybe you end up with two goalkeepers who aren't at their best. Um, so it's, it's hugely complicated. Mm. I, 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 there was a madness in Arteta's eyes when he was like, somebody's going to do it. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Um, but I don't believe he will do it this season. I, I, I think that may be a bridge too far, even for, for him. I think so as well. I think so. But look, we will live and learn. We'll see. Yeah, to Zerbi will be doing it. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ramsdale up top. Edge. Ramsdale up top for the last 20. Sure, Stick I think it that. Well, okay. I think we've sort of dealt with that yeah. topic. I was had another question about it, but I think we've sort of said everything. There okay, said. Joe on Twitter, who's at JSplee1 or JSplee1, I don't know. He says, goodly morning, gents. Despite the absences of Partey and Timber, how insane is our bench? Aaron Ramsdale, Takahiro Tomiyasu, Jakub Kivior, Emil Smith-Rowe, Kai Havertz, Jorginho, Leandro Trossard, Gabriel Jesus, Reese Nelson. That was our bench yesterday. He says, best in the prem? It's pretty good. It's, yeah, I've seen a lot worse in my time, that's for sure. Yeah, and in our time as Arsenal fans, you know, um, we've had much worse benches than that, even last season, probably. Um so, yeah, there's a lot of depth there at this present point in time. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, a list of international players, isn't it? Mm. Um, very strong. Very strong indeed. And yeah, I'm curious to see how many of those start 
uh, on Wednesday. You know, is Arteta just going to keep very consistent with his 11? Is he going to mix it up? Um, we'll find out. We'll find out. I mean, we did have a question uh, asking us to, to pick our team for uh, PSV. But we might save that for our preview podcast, which we'll have for you on, on Patreon tomorrow. But if anyone's interested in my team, I would have Aaron Ramsdale up front and David Ryer in goal. Okay. I like it. I like Carl it. Hine. Carl Hine, right back. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sort of centre half sized right back. You know, they I mean? all have amazing qualities. So let's let's get them yeah, all let's in. get them all in there. Um I mean, just briefly on that though, in sort of broad terms, how important is it for him to get guys involved? Like Jorginho, for example, like Kai Havertz again. Um, you know, does Fabio Vieira keep his place? Do you play Gabriel Jesus up front in this one to get minutes into into his legs? The eternal when will we ever see Emil Smith Rowe on the pitch again question. You know, this this is where I think finding the balance between having a very strong squad, and we've talked about just you know how strong that bench was. Do you have to trust it? Do you have to very obviously trust it for a home game in the Champions League? We're all excited it's back. You've got to take it seriously. Of course you do. But you you can't talk all the time about needing and wanting a stronger squad and then pick the same players game after game after game after game because, uh, you know, I think that is in some ways the, the safe option. No, I think you're right. I think there will be some changes. I think... Havertz will probably come back in. Um, I think Tommy Asu might get a start. The Jesus one, I hope the decision is being made really by the physios. Um, you know, if they think it would be beneficial to him to play an hour, say, ahead of the North London derby, then I'm all for it. Um, but Sunday's the one I really want him to start. Uh, so mm. it's kind of... It depends on his load and his fitness and what they think is appropriate at this point in time. But yeah, there are people like Jorginho who are important squad members and sooner or later are going to need a nod, you know, to make them feel part of the group, to keep them happy. Well, that's what um, he said, isn't he? I want to, you know, create an environment where everybody feels engaged. That's what he said when he was explaining the... The, um, the goalkeeper decision. The goalkeeping yeah. thing. Yeah, and Jorginho would be one that I could see potentially. Um I could see that. Do you think he's got a chance of starting in the week? Possible. Um, you know, I think in the absence of, of Thomas Partey, Declan Rice has become very, very important very quickly. I think I had a question here, actually. Um, Ian Jenkinson on the Discord. Uh, Goodly morning, gents. What, what what are your thoughts on Declan Rice yesterday? I thought he was unbelievably good. With Vieira and Odegaard playing further forward, he basically handled a physical Everton midfield on his own. What a signing he is for us. Um, I mean, I, I do... don't disagree with that. No, I, mean, I, I thought, thought he was, was very good. I thought he was outstanding. I really did. You know, just not necessarily... Um, I was going to say not necessarily eye-catching, but there were some moments in that game where, you know, he just appeared out of nowhere or he he, he got back to stick a foot in. There was one high up the pitch, which maybe got us a chance. There were a couple of defensive interventions. I think he sort of was, was everywhere, but without being overly showy, if you know what I mean. I think it was just a really, really competent um, professional performance from from Declan Rice. Um, and he's come to Arsenal to play in the big games, to play in the Champions League. Um, maybe you know the latter stages of the Champions League are more 
um, prestigious or whatever it is, but it is it is what I think he's one of those players who's going to play a lot. Right, yeah. Well, uh, I think he'll be desperate to play, that's for sure, and that's the difficulty. You know, all these guys want to play. Um, he has become very, very important very quickly. Um, and I thought yesterday, look, he does a lot of good stuff on the ball and he's very tidy. Uh, but I do think off the ball, he has improved us significantly in terms of his positional play, strength, in duels, his presence on the pitch, the way he seems to mop the ball up, you know, collect those loose balls and recycle possession. I think he's made us better. Um, and to be fair, for £100 million, I guess that's what you would expect. Yeah. Joe at Red and White 11 basically asks, you know, when Partey's fit, does he get back in the team? Is he in our strongest 11? Well, I think, you know, that it's, it's kind of what Arteta's saying. We have to kind of maybe look past that um, and say, uh, you know, there are going to be games where parties picked and there's going to be some where he's not. But in the long term, I think it's clear that Declan Rice is the future, right? In a, mm. in a way that Thomas Partey sort of can't be because of his age and because of injury problems. Um, so I think inevitably kind of Rice is going to, uh, come to the fore. And I think that is his best position, that one at the base of the midfield. I think that's what he was bought for. And I think it's where he's happiest on the field. I think I think he just, mm. he looks so sort of- Composed. Composed, consummate. Yeah. It, it's kind of like watching William Saliba at centre-half, you know. Yeah. He just, he has that great balance between physicality composure the mental side and the technique as well and I think great teams are built on great spines and kind of having Saliba and Rice like at the heart of your team uh, is very very strong yes yeah it is I, um, I you know I've been not surprised but really pleased at how quickly he has settled in and I think Part of it is, uh, we talked about confidence, didn't we, when it comes to goalkeepers. But I think when when he made his decision to come to Arsenal, after all the wooing that we did with him, I just think he's immediately felt, yeah, this is the right place for me. Um, and that's translated into performance levels. Like there's a sort of a, an assurance. He doesn't look like somebody who came in going, mm, I wonder will I get my game? You know, he knows he's going to play. Um, and I think that's that's evident in in what we're seeing from him so far. Yeah, and I think people worry a lot about price tags and how they might become a millstone around a player's neck. But some players embrace it and thrive on that. And you mm. know, essentially, it's a hundred million pound endorsement of him as a player from Mikel Arteta, and it feels like that's how he's taken it. And we speak about how quickly he settled, but we bought him from the Premier League. He was at another. London club and all those things help to mm. make the transition easier so yeah it's been a great start from him and it's needed to be because you know imagine if uh, I told you 12 months ago we're going to go away from home in the Premier League Thomas Partey is going to be injured uh, and it's not even going to be a talking point really mm. it tells you how far we've come sure what about this um, from S McManus on the discord and he says, goodly morning, fellas, statement style questions here. Uh, and he says, number one, the Champions League is easier to win than the Premier League for Arsenal this season. 
And number two, Arsenal should focus more on the Champions League than the Premier League. The Champions League is easier for... I think that's true. I mean, it probably is, but it's also still really fucking difficult because, <laughs> you know, there's some, some very good teams in it and... Man City you know, are also in the Champions League. <laughs> well, exactly. And then you've got teams like Real Madrid who, for whatever reason, can be not at their best domestically, but but when it comes to Europe, they just sort of have a way of, of, of traversing. The, They've got some weird voodoo yeah, shit. Voodoo shit. Okay, fair enough. I think it's, it's still very, 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 very difficult. Uh, and the Premier League is very, 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 very difficult, um, you know, because like you say, there's a, a team that's in the Premier League and is also in the Champions League, and that is that is Manchester City. As for we should, uh, the, the contention that we should take the Champions League more seriously, I don't think you can do that. You know, at this point, four games, five games into a season, you can't sort of decide to go all in on one competition. And and I do think it comes back to the culture that Arteta says he wants to implement at this football club where, you know, winning every game is what's important, regardless of the competition. You know, you are Arsenal Football Club, you should win this game. Um, so I don't think we can say we should take the Champions League more seriously than the Premier League. Nobody would, nobody would like that. I don't think because, no. <laughs> you know, you're one game away from being knocked out, at least in the Premier League, you've got a chance. If you know, have a little bad period, you've got a chance to put things right, you know, so. That's true. That's true. I, I don't think you can prioritise the Champions League. I think the Premier League's your bread and butter. Maybe there comes a point in the season where, you know, the title's beyond you and the Champions League draws panned out in your favour. Mm. Maybe there's a shift in emphasis in March or April. Yeah but not at this point in time. I do think the Champions League may be easier to win than the Premier League, uh, just because, you know, the draw can really play out in your favour and other top teams can be eliminated without you even having to play them. Um, buoyed by my Everton sort of prediction, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I am going to say, I really feel that Arsenal will win something this season. I really feel they will. And I, I don't know what it's going to be. And my, my hunch is it's not the Premier League. I just think City are going to City. But looking at this group, I think we are, I think we look really strong. And I think all the, the fact that we haven't even really clicked in the final third yet, I actually think is cause for encouragement potentially. Um, Carabao think, Cup all the way. I mean, it, honestly, Andrew, it <laughs> might be. It might be. I just think when you talk about that substitutes bench and the degree of depth that we have, mm. I think we're going to be strong in those cup competitions. And I hope we are. I really yeah, do. Yeah. Like, Same. I think we need to start racking up some silverware if we're going to get to where we want to get to as a club. Um, I'd love it to be the title. Me too. Um, but That would be my... That would be fantastic. But I've just got a good feeling that there's going to be something. I mean, I guess we've already got the Community Shield and the Emirates Cup, Andrew. Yeah, of course. Of course. But we want more. That's the thing. We're greedy yeah. for more. Um, let's do this one from Anil, who's at Anil underscore Nijar on Twitter. Good morning, gents. Rank these hoodoo fixtures by which you would like us to win the most. One, a win against Manchester City. Two, a win at Anfield. 
Three, a win at Old Trafford. Four, knocking out Barcelona in the uh, Champions League knockout round. Uh, five, knocking out Bayern in the Champions League knockout round. Well, that would be sweet, given their new number nine. But it's got to be City. Yeah, I think it's time. Arsenal need to beat City this season. And I, my eyes are pretty firmly trained on October 8th um, at the Emirates Stadium. Half past four. Uh, I... I think that's a big game. I think that's a psychological barrier we kind of need to break down at this point. It is. And, you know, Community Shield was all well and good, but let's face it, it was a draw. We won on pens. I don't think that will carry anything like the weight of beating them in a Premier League game. I agree. I agree. That's the one I would choose. It would be such a Philip, you know, such a shot in the arm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think we're capable of it. I do think we are. I think we look better equipped to do it maybe now than we have for some time. Oh, I'd love it. I'd yeah, love I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, we bemoan the fact that when we've played City, um, you know, in recent times, we maybe haven't had our strongest team out. Maybe Partey's been injured for one of the games. So, you know, that's that was a downgrade situation. It's not anymore, as you mentioned previously with Declan Rice. You know, we have that we have that sort of raise in, in the floor of our squad, you know? So... Mm-hmm. I hope circumstances are right for a win against Manchester City. I do think it's one of those where, you know, we need to... You've got to prove yourself against the best teams, and they are basically the best team around and have been for a long time for all the reasons we know and understand and maybe dislike, but it doesn't alter the fact that on the pitch, you know, they've had the better of us, and it's it's uh, it's about time we did it. But, you know, I think slowly, steadily, we are sort of undoing some of the the records that we've had. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah, I mean, I want all of those, you know? I want to win at Old Trafford pretty badly. Um, Anfield would be great, but I just think City is the most sort of pertinent right now. Sure, sure, sure. It'd be good. You know, beat Barcelona in the first knockout round of the Champions League, beat Bayern in the quarterfinals. For some mad reason, some crap team is through to the semifinal. We beat them and then beat Man City in the final. How about that? <laughs> I think my I think I'd be dead by the end of a run of fixtures like that. Um, Let me ask you this one then. Uh, this is quite interesting from Scrumpy Lungs on the Discord. He said, "I know most corners taken is an incredibly mundane stat, but the number of corners we've had this season compared to other uh, compared to other teams is so much larger. I found it interesting. Is this a sign of how much we're attacking and just need to be better at finishing chances rather than uh, them going out for a corner? Or do you think with all our set-piece planning that winning a lot of corners is a strategy? And just to give you the numbers, Arsenal have won the most corners in the Premier League so far this season with 47. Second, Manchester United, 36. Uh, City on 35. Liverpool, 34. Chelsea, 33. Brighton, 32 uh, with Spurs. Yeah, we're way out in front. I think that basically is just reflective of our dominance in games. Mm. I don't think it's a deliberate ploy to win corners. But, you know, we have scored more goals from corners, I think, than any other team since the start of last season. So maybe when we get to the byline, you know, and we say, oh, we could keep it or try and come back the other way or, you know, go around the horseshoe. Maybe we are a bit more inclined than some other teams to say, well, we'll take the corner because, Mm. you know, we've got pedigree. 
Um, but I, I doubt it's quite as deliberate as that. I think it's just a consequence of where we're playing our football. And also so who, who we've played as well, you know. And who we've played. Teams yeah. that are sitting deep. And I think that's just a consequence of that for sure. Yeah. But interesting, isn't it, how much they mixed it up from, from the United game to the Everton game in terms yeah. of the, the type of delivery, the strategy in those scenarios. Um, chalk and cheese, really. Whether that was a response to what happened against United or specific to Everton. I guess we'll see as the, the weeks go on. They definitely do a lot of work on it. You know, they definitely do a lot of work on these routines. Um, you know, I suppose part of that, uh, going back to what we were talking about in the first half, is the ability to improvise within the patterns that they practice on the training ground. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we've, we sort of talked about, around a similar theme, but I think this is well put. B. Cole 90 says, Goodly morning, gents. The Invincibles were obviously great. But I always found them more robotic than our 0102 and 0203 sides. They seemed to focus on control and often went ahead early and then went into cruise mode. Liverpool under Klopp went, underwent a similar transition to win the league. Do you feel that to win the league, you have to become a little less entertaining to stand a chance when you're trying to be a state funded supercomputer in Man City? Yes. Mm. Yeah, I do actually, and I think I think that's a good point about the Invincibles. Yeah, yeah, I do too as well. That that, that look, obviously, there's a mythology about the Invincibles, right? Yeah, amazing team, amazing players. You know, uh, when you go through it from front to back, right? Incredible talent throughout that team. But what that incredible talent allows you to do more than sort of play with a flourish and dominate game after game after game was to come up with clutch moments in tight games that got you three points or got you a draw, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't, I don't sort of think robotic is exactly fair, but I do wonder if perhaps in the mists of time, we have romanticized some of the, the, the performances, um, because of what an achievement it was to go through the season unbeaten, there were a lot of fucking tight wins in that season, right? Yeah. A lot of two ones, 12 draws as well, if you remember. And I've made this comment before. I'm, I remember at the time people saying, well, we're drawing too many games. We're drawing too many games. Um, but the, the talent and the quality that we had when you've got Henri, when you've got Bergkamp, Vieira, Jumberg, Pires, you know, these guys who can, in the blink of an eye, change the, the course of a game with a moment of quality, I think those are the, those are the things that you need to win titles. Yeah. Um, I, and and memory plays tricks, but yeah. I, I remember many Invincibles games uh, where the game was over after 20 minutes. You know, Arsenal would get a couple of go goals. Omri and Pires would score right-footed shots from the left-hand side of the penalty box. And then it was just like passing drills, basically. Mm. Um, and again, memory plays tricks. But I do recall that. It wasn't all... Uh, high art you know? no I mean there were some there were some obviously uh, standout games there was one against I think it was Middlesbrough away early in the season and we scored four goals in the first 20 minutes or something like that mm. but around that the first game of the season was a 2-1 win against Everton when we had to scrap it with 10 men do you remember Saul Campbell got sent off mm, yeah. um, you know 
beat Man City 2-1, drew 1-1 with Portsmouth, beat Newcastle 3-2, beat Liverpool 2-1, beat Chelsea 2-1, 1-1 with Charlton. Then you have one of those games where it's amazing and you beat Leeds 4-1. 2-1 win against Spurs, 0-0 against Fulham, 1-1 against Leicester, 1-0 against Blackburn, 1-1 with Bolton. Then you get a 3-0 against Wolves, 1-0 against Southampton, 1-1 with Everton, a 4-1 against Middlesbrough. You know what I mean? There were a lot of really tight games, a lot of really tight games. Um, And I think just the ability to produce when you absolutely need it is what what set that team apart. You know, there was a a huge mentality, but a huge uh, amount of talent, and the talent was enough when coupled with that mentality to beat teams that on paper you're looking at, you know, you're looking at sort of um, Blackburn or Fulham back then. Uh, and you're thinking, well, you know, this should be 3-4-0 for Arsenal. But that's not how football works. That's not how football works. And I think, you know, that might be something we need to think about when we look at the start of this season where, okay, we haven't played quite as well as we would have liked but we've got the ability to win games while doing that. And like you said in the, the first half, I think that augurs really well for what's to come. Mm, I, I agree. Okay, here's one from TK Samuels. Uh, he says, goodly morning. Uh, great to get the win at Everton. He said, I love Eddie, but his performance today struck me as a bit Lacazette-y. It seems like it's very hard for strikers to score in Arteta teams. All of the strikers we've had, uh, of all of the strikers we've had, Jesus seems the only one who's been able to really score consistently when playing up front. And even then, he's had some periods where he didn't. He said, how much of a concern is it that we have such specific requirements for the centre-forward role to work? Well, yeah, I mean, Jesus went a dozen or so games, didn't he? Mm. Um, shortly before his injury. Um, I, I have to say, I didn't think Eddie was particularly bad yesterday. I thought he had some decent moments, a couple of nice touches. I do just think, as you said in part one, it's it's a tough job. It's a tough, tough job playing up against two six-foot centre-halves. Um, and I think it is correct, probably, what the question says, that it's not the way we've tended to play. It's not necessarily... Uh, a position that's set up for someone to score goal after goal after goal. You know, a lot of the way we play mm. seems to be focused on um, getting Saka and Martinelli into those positions or Martin Odegaard. And they seem to have a bit more joy sort of coming onto the ball. Uh, I, I think it's also very clear that Jesus is the best striker Arsenal have. And, you know, that's why I say for me, it's a massive priority that he plays against Tottenham and whatever the right thing to do is to facilitate that yeah. against PSV is what I would do. Um, I think Eddie clearly is important to Arteta and I, I think he will have really appreciated the start yesterday, especially after going away with England and suffering the disappointment of mm. not actually getting off the bench, even though there was a friendly game against Scotland where England were comfortably ahead. You know, I don't know what value there was in bringing Callum Wilson on when you could have given Eddie his debut. Maybe that's bias on my part. But um, Jesus is the man. And, yeah, I, I think, you know, I can't wait to see him back start it. Yeah, same, same. 
Um, what did you think of it? I think I think maybe I was a bit more positive about Eddie's performance than you were. No, I think he struggled to get into the game, but I think it's a consequence of the way that that Everton played as much mm. as anything, you know. Um, it sounds weird because we think of striker as being the glory position, but there certainly have been times during Mikel Arteta's tenure at Arsenal where thankless task would be a bit over the top, but you know, where so much is being demanded of you that it's, it's not really about the glory. You know, it's so, it's as much about facilitating other people. Yes. I think the center forward role in this Arsenal team is not what we would consider the traditional center forward, much more of a facilitator, a conduit for others. Um, And that's why Jesus is so good at it, you know, and I'm really excited to see him back and fully fit because, you know, not that we um, exist in the short term, you know, but but things get forgotten very quickly. And I think, not that we've forgotten, but but it's easy to, um, I'm fucking all over the place here. I just mean that when, um, you know, when he came into the team last season and before he got that injury, he was just so good. Even if he wasn't scoring, he was so good uh, in terms of his all-round play, and I'm really excited to see that back. So, yeah. And uh, you you saw him in pre-season before the surgery. Uh, and I think the perception was yeah. that he, he already was looking better, you know? For sure. For sure. A couple of quick ones. Um, True Story, who's at True Story underscore number four. Um, what kind of CEO would you like to uh, like to see succeed Vinay, who is uh, departing at the end of the season? Do you care? Um, well I like Vinay I think he's a really great guy and I think that when he leaves at the end of the season I think he'll be able to feel very satisfied about the period of Arsenal um, that he's kind of presided over you know this has been the last few years in particular a very positive time for the club a very progressive time and some really exciting and interesting developments with, you know, the women's team. Um, and I know things like that have been a great passion of his. So I'm sorry to see him go in that respect and on a personal level. But I also think anybody moving on always creates opportunity for evolution, growth, change. Um, and I'm excited to see what that might entail. I don't have the business expertise to pick out the guy who should be leading Arsenal as chief executive from next season. Um, so I guess we just have to put our faith in those that are, are at the club yeah. that the right appointment will be made. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm like you. I don't know uh, enough about any potential candidate to say um, who it should be or, or or anything else. But you just hope that it's somebody who can come in and continue the good work and uh, help the club progress and... and um, achieve the things we want to achieve. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we haven't talked about Vinay a great deal as chief executive. And to be honest, that may well be a good thing. You know, we've been talking about the football decision makers at the club primarily. And I think that's what you want from sort of the business arm of the club. You know, I, I think you want to foreground those people and give them autonomy. Um but obviously there are other areas like uh, commercial and stuff like sure. that where 
you know, there may be exciting opportunities or, or room for growth. So yeah. maybe you're right. Like a good, like, you know, a good CEO is the one you don't talk about too much. Yeah, and we're not talking kind of about saying. who's the, who's the little toad guy at Manchester United. Kenyon, was it? No. Oh, no, no. Woodward? Wood, Woodward, yeah. What was his first name? <clears throat> Ed. It was not. Was it? Wasn't Ed, it? Was it? Edward. Edward Wood? He was the equalizer. Edward Woodward <laughs> was the original equalizer in the TV show. Ed Woodward. He was, he was also, once he uh, finished equalizing, he was also the uh, executive vice chairman. Yeah. He was He was in the news a lot uh, at Manchester United, but maybe that's as For much. For bad reasons. You yeah, know? well, that's it. That's it. Uh, and then during Ivan's time, you know, they were, he attracted a lot of criticism at points. Um I think, yeah, I, I think the, the club structure is obviously a little bit different now. Yeah. Uh, and the club ownership situation is obviously different now. But I think it's a really exciting job for somebody. Um, I'm sure Arsenal probably would have liked to make the announcement later in the season because it feels a bit early and a bit unnecessary at this point in time because Vinay is going to be here for months and months and months. But I guess there will have to be an appointment process of sorts. And sure. at least that's all happening out in the open now. Finally, from Wenger Boy on the Discord, B-H-O-Y, so I presume he's a, a Celtic fan as well. Um, goodly day. Which of the part-human, part-testicle managers will be sadder today, Sean Dyche or Eric Ten Hag? <laughs> I think Eric Ten Hag. I think Sean Dyche will accept. I got beaten by a very good team. Well, so did United, to be fair. Yeah. But that's the expectations, Um for Everton, you know, they're in a relegation battle already. And I think they'll be looking ahead to other matches. I think Eric Ten Hag, I think that situation at United is messier. Um, you know, there was a point last season where I, I will admit, I thought they'd maybe gotten their shit together. Um, <laughs> that was, you know, plainly wrong. I tweeted about this the other day, but I personally feel that they are still feeling, to a certain extent, the ramifications of that 7-0 defeat against Liverpool. I think there was a great effort made by the club and the media to sort of consign that to history. But I think as Arsenal fans, we know better than anyone the scars that a defeat like that mm. in a big game against a rival can leave on the club and the way they can sort of shake the faith of the fans the players, the way they can erode the manager's credibility potentially in the dressing room. I think we experienced that in a big way um, over the last, you know, I don't know, decade or so. And I think that's had a say in what's happened at United, along with, I, th I think, some slightly odd recruitment decisions. So I think Ten Hag's in a Bit of trouble there right now. Yeah, I watched that game on Saturday. Oh, did you? Mm -hmm. Brighton was, are very good, aren't they? They really, really are very good. I, I saw, yeah. I mean, Ten Hag coming out and talking about how Brighton spent a lot of money, and then the graphic does the rounds, and their entire squad was their their first team, team was, was what, eighteen million. Eighteen no. million compared to the three hundred and something million that that that. Uh, Manchester United's team cost and that's not with you know a couple of players who are out of the squad at this moment in time who cost you know basically 100 million each you know um Brighton are excellent they really are an excellent football team but I would say if I were a Manchester United fan and thank fuck I'm not 
uh, I would be really worried about what I saw from some of the players in terms of their commitment, their willingness to do the basics in terms of just fucking running. You know, they were absolutely shambolic at times. Like the kind of hapless, disinterested displays that would have Mikel Arteta going absolutely crazy. A lot of walking around from Marcus Rashford. But Rashford, McTominay, Bruno Bruno Fernandes, you know, the, the goals that they conceded, look, good goals from a Brighton perspective, but, you know, you, you've got to do more. Um, not chasing back, not picking up runs yeah. from midfield. Yeah. I mean, there's a great clip that I've seen on social media. I, I don't know if it's the second or third Brighton goal, lol, but um, <laughs> it's like a f- two and a half minute passing sequence, you know, from Steele at the back all the way. I think they go back and they go front to back and then front to back again, essentially. And you, you can see the United players kind of give up. And I don't want to take all the credit away from Brighton because I think they did that to United with their yeah. passing and their intelligence. But yeah, I think some worrying signs, Old Trafford, or exciting signs if you're an Arsenal fan. <laughs> or a fan of any other club. It's exciting yeah. to see Manchester United dissolve into a, a horrible shambles, fingers crossed. And, and I must say, actually, I do take a particular satisfaction seeing Danny Welbeck um, thriving at Brighton, a player I always really liked and thought, you know, tactically was very, very good. And when you watch Brighton play, you know, they've got Evan Ferguson there as well. Yeah. The fact that Danny Welbeck is starting, his combination play, his athleticism still, uh, he's a very good footballer. Yeah, I'm pleased is. to see he's had a kind of, you know, What's the word? He's been, he found the right club for himself at this point of his career, you know? Yeah. And he's always a good guy at Arsenal. He had some very difficult uh, problems with injury and, and all the rest of it, but a, a really likable uh, player. So it's good to see him do well there. And I can admire Brighton until such point as yeah, we play them. Um, <laughs> and then, then I will fear them. <laughs> <laughs> and I reserve uh, uh, reserve the right to change my opinion on every single Brighton player until such point as we're not playing them again and they take some other bunch of cunts apart. So, uh, right, we better leave it there uh, for this week's show. Uh, we'll have an episode of The 30 for you tomorrow. We'll look back at all the weekend's Premier League action. There is a game tonight, of course, so that's why we'll record that tomorrow morning. We'll talk a bit more about Manchester United, of course, and have a good laugh at that. We'll also have a PSV preview podcast for you, so please do join us for that over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash arsblog for now. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.